Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, y'all. Welcome to episode 93 of Reclaiming the Faith. Today, I'm starting a three-part series where I look at what the earliest Christians would have to say about the five points of Reformed theology or Calvinism, also known as TULIP. Today, we will be looking at the first of those five points, total depravity. But before we get into the episode, I want to share with y'all a preview of one of the songs off my upcoming album, Kingdom Come. And this is a revamped version of an old song I recorded called No Better Offer. So I hope you like the 2021 version. Here it is. So yeah, that was a preview of track three off the upcoming album, Kingdom Come, which will be out January 15th. Well, if this episode is a blessing to you, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. And you can find links to all my resources like my book, my music, podcast, Patreon, all that stuff. You can find links at philsbaker.com. I'm blessed to be a part of the Omega Frequency family with BDK and Kurt. So please become a subscriber of the YouTube channel, Omega Frequency. You will be blessed with a lot of content every week. Finally, the early Christian quotes that I use can generally be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, which you can buy for a mere $5 on the Scroll Publishing website, scrollpublishing.com. All right. Well, without any further ado, let's get episode 93 rolling. The main reason I started this channel, Reclaiming the Faith, is to be able to expose both Christians and non-Christians to what the earliest believers and followers of Jesus taught and believed. And I think this is crucial because if you're like me and you have a theology degree and a seminary degree, you were most likely taught that Orthodox Christianity began with Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo. But that's not exactly the case. 
And so what I want to do is be able to show you how an early Christian like Clement of Rome or Irenaeus or Tertullian, how some of these early Christians would feel about the beliefs of Reformed theology or Calvinism, the five points that are called TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And so the point of this three-part series is not to get into a Bible study. It's not to say uh, that the early Christians were right and reformed theologians and Calvinists are wrong. That's not the point of this three-part series, and it's not the point of my podcast. I want to give you as much information as possible so that you can make an informed decision about what orthodoxy really is. And I know that there are many denominations, if you will, of reformed uh, belief, uh, many interpretations of what Calvin actually believed and taught. And so in order to avoid the straw man fallacy as much as possible, what I'm going to do is read to you from Calvin's Institutes of Religion, uh, uh, what he would say about each of these five points in TULIP. And then I'm also going to depend on John Piper's book, Five Points, uh, to let him interpret for us, John Piper being a Reformed theologian, a Calvinist, uh, let him interpret each of these five points for us. And then I'm going to lay out what the early Christians said about each of those five points. So I hope in doing that and giving you Calvin's own words from institutes of the Christian religion, and then John Piper's uh, interpretation of those five points that you will have a pretty fair uh, description of each of these five points from Calvin himself, and one of the leading uh, Calvinistic or Reformed theologians, John Piper. Okay, so again, we're not going to be doing a Bible study. We're just going to be looking at what Calvin himself taught, how Calvinists interpret these things, and how er how the early Christians would respond to those five points. So I hope this is a blessing to you. All right, let's kick this off in episode number uh, 93 with the T of Tulip, total depravity. And we're going to spend this entire episode looking at total depravity because it is, according to people like R.C. Sproul, the foundation for all of the five points. All of the five points hang on this one issue of total depravity. So let's get into it. This is Calvin again in the Institutes of Christian Religion. This is book two, uh, chapter one and section eight. Calvin writes, original sin then may be defined as a hereditary corruption and depravity of our nature, extending to all the parts of the soul, which first makes us obnoxious to the wrath of God and then produces in us works, which in scripture are termed works of the flesh. Skipping forward, the two things therefore are to be distinctly observed, namely that, being thus perverted and corrupted in all the parts of our nature, we are merely on account of such corruption, deservedly condemned by God to whom nothing is acceptable, but righteousness, innocence, and purity. Again, skipping forward. 
And the apostle most distinctly testifies that, quote, death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. That's from Romans 5.12. That is, are involved in original sin and polluted by its stain. Hence, even infants bringing their condemnation with them from their mother's womb suffer not for another's but for their own defect. For although they have not yet produced the fruits of their own unrighteousness, they have the seed implanted in them. Nay, their whole nature is, as it were, a seedbed of sin, and therefore cannot but be odious and abominable to God. Hence, it follows that it is properly deemed sinful in the sight of God, for there could be no condemnation without guilt. Next comes the other point, namely that this perversity in us never ceases, but constantly produces new fruits. In other words, those works of the flesh, which we formally described. And again, skipping forward, for our nature is not only utterly devoid of goodness, but so prolific in all kinds of evil that it can never be idle. All right, so you can interpret that as you wish from Calvin, but I'm going to now give you John Piper's interpretation of total depravity. And this is again from his book, Five Points, which you can read online. I'm gonna provide links to both uh, Calvin, Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religions and John Piper's uh, book, Five Points. There are links to both of those in the show notes, okay? So this is from pages 17 and 18 and then 22 and 23 of Piper's book. All right, he says, when we speak of man's depravity, we mean man's natural condition apart from any grace exerted by God to restrain or transform men. The totality of that depravity is clearly not that man does as much evil as he could do. There is no doubt that man could perform more evil acts toward his fellow man than he does. But if he is restrained from performing more evil acts by motives that are not owing to his glad submission to God, then even his, quote, virtue is evil in the sight of God. Romans 14, 23 says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is a radical indictment of all natural, quote, virtue that does not flow from a heart humbly relying on God's grace. An example might make this radical indictment of much human goodness clearer. Suppose you're the father of a teenage son. You remind him to wash the car before he uses it to take his friends to the basketball game tonight. He had earlier agreed to do that. He gets angry and says he doesn't want to. You gently but firmly remind him of his promise and say that's what you expect. He resists. You say, well, if you're going to use the car tonight, that's what you agreed to do. He storms out of the room angry. Later, you see him washing the car, but he is not doing it out of love for you or out of a Christ-honoring desire to honor you as his father. He wants to go to the game with his friends. That 
is what constrains his, quote, obedience. And I put obedience in quotes because it is only external. His heart is wrong. That is what I mean when I say that all human, quote, virtue is depraved if it is not from a heart of love to the heavenly father, even if the behavior conforms to biblical norms. The terrible condition of man's heart will never be recognized by people who assess it only in relation to other men. Your son will drive his friends to the ball game. That is, quote, kindness, and they will experience it as a benefit. So the evil of our actions can never be measured merely by the harm they do to other humans. Romans 14.23 makes it plain that depravity is our condition in relation to God primarily and only secondarily in relation to man. Unless we start here, we will never grasp the totality of our natural depravity. Skipping forward. In summary, total depravity means that our rebellion against God is total. Everything we do in this rebellion is sinful. Our inability to submit to God or reform ourselves is total, and we are therefore totally deserving of eternal punishment. It is hard to exaggerate the importance of admitting our condition to be this bad. If we think of ourselves as basically good or even less than totally at odds with God, our grasp of the work of God and redemption will be defective. But if we humble ourselves under this terrible truth of our total depravity, we will be in a position to see and appreciate the glory and wonder of the work of God discussed in the next four points. The aim of this book is to deepen our experience of God's grace. The aim is not to depress or discourage or to paralyze. Knowing the seriousness of our disease will make us all the more amazed at the greatness of our physician. Knowing the extent of our deep-seated rebellion will stun us at the long-suffering grace and patience of God toward us. The way we worship God and the way we treat other people, especially our enemies, are profoundly and wonderfully affected by our knowing our depravity to the full. All right, so I hope that's a pretty fair um, display of the Calvinistic belief of total depravity. I tried to give you long quotes in context so as to avoid any type of proof texting. And I'm not going to give you um, any explanation or my interpretation of those things because I want you to be able to listen to those things and form your own opinion on them. I am going to now read to you several quotes from the early Christians, and I will be doing a little bit of uh, interpretation of these quotes. Um, So this first quote is from a man named Ignatius of Antioch. He's the Bishop of Antioch. He was a personal disciple of the apostle John and a highly respected leader of the church. We have seven of his letters that he wrote on the way to Rome to be martyred. Just an incredible, incredible follower of Jesus really want to encourage you to go read his works. Anyway, Ignatius wrote, If anyone is truly religious, he is a man of God. But if he is irreligious, he is a man of the devil, made such not by nature, but by his own choice. And so you see Ignatius there 
stating that if we do wrong, we're not doing wrong because it's in our nature to do wrong, but we're doing wrong because we choose to do wrong. Okay, here is Justin Martyr's first apology. Uh, This is in chapter 43, and he writes this. But lest some suppose from what has been said by us that we say that whatever happens happens by a fatal necessity because it is foretold as known beforehand, this too we explain. We have learned from the prophets and we hold it to be true that punishments, chastisements, and good rewards are rendered according to the merit of each man's actions. Since, if it be not so, but all things happen by fate, neither is anything at all in our own power. For if it be fated that this man be good and this other evil, neither is the former meritorious nor the latter to be blamed. And again, unless the human race have the power of avoiding evil and choosing good by free choice, they are not accountable for their actions, whatever kind they may be, but that it is by free choice that they both walk uprightly and stumble, we thus demonstrate. We see the same man making a transition to opposite things. Now, if it had been fated that he were to be either good or bad, he could never have been capable of both the opposites, nor of so many transitions. But not even would some be good and others bad, since we thus make fate the cause of evil and exhibit her as acting in opposition to herself, or that which has been already stated would seem to be true, that neither virtue nor vice is anything, but that things are only reckoned good or evil by opinion, which, as the true word shows, is the greatest impiety and wickedness. But this we assert is inevitable fate, that they who choose the good have worthy rewards, and they who choose the opposite have their merited rewards. For not like other things as trees or quadrupeds, which cannot act by choice, did God make man. For neither would he be worthy of reward or praise, did he not himself choose the good, but were created for this end. Nor, if he were evil, would he be worthy of punishment, not being evil of himself, but being able to be nothing else than what he was made. So though... Justin is uh, writing against some Gnostic and Stoic beliefs about fate. They do, in a way, apply to uh, what Calvin and Piper discuss. Because here Justin is saying that men are created with the ability to do good. Okay, so he's saying that if people are predetermined to be either good or bad, then actually that renders those terms, good and bad, meaningless if they were created without the ability to choose either. 
I don't know if that makes sense, but you could say if it is God's will that a person be evil, if God has created a person to be evil and that person does what he has been preordained to do, then is that even evil if the person is doing what he has been created to do? Justin says, contrary to that, that men are created with the ability to choose either good or bad. And we see people doing both good and bad regularly. And so when they choose good, they are rewarded for that. And when they choose bad, they are negatively rewarded for that as well. All right. Our last, or sorry, second to last quote is from Tertullian. This is on a treatise of the soul written around 207 AD. This is from chapter 41, I believe. And he writes this, notwithstanding the depravity of man's soul by original sin, there is yet left a basis whereon divine grace can work for its recovery by spiritual regeneration. As we have said before, the corruption of our nature is another nature having a lowered case G, God and father of its own, namely the author of that corruption. Still, there is a portion of good in the soul and that original divine and genuine good, which is its proper nature. For that which is derived from God is rather obscured than extinguished. It can be obscured indeed because it is not God. Extinguished, however, it cannot be because it comes from God. As therefore light, when intercepted by an opaque body still remains, although it is not apparent, by reason of the interposition of so dense a body, so likewise the good in the soul being weighed down by the evil is, owing to the obscuring character thereof, either not seen at all, its light being wholly hidden, or else only a stray beam is there visible when it struggles through by an accidental outlet. Thus, some men are very bad and some are very good, but yet the souls of all form but one genus. Even in the worst, there is something good, and in the best, there is something bad. For God alone is without sin, and the only man without sin is Christ since Christ is also God. Thus the divinity of the soul bursts forth in prophetic forecasts in consequence of its primeval good. I'm going to pause there for a minute. So uh, Tertullian is saying, because we have a corrupted nature, we have to depend on God for our salvation. All right. He, he makes that very clear for, from the beginning that we need to be regenerated by God's working uh, through the Holy Spirit, by what Jesus did and through the, what the Holy Spirit does for us. But he's also saying that people are not completely depraved. He is saying there is good in all people because we have been created by God and everything created by God is good. And there's also bad in people because we have been corrupted, but we have not been completely 
corrupted. All right, let's keep going with Tertullian. He continues, just as no soul is without sin, so neither is any soul without seeds of good. Therefore, when the soul embraces the faith, being renewed in its second birth by water and the power from above, then the veil of its former corruption being taken away, it beholds the light in all its brightness. It is also taken up in its second birth by the Holy Spirit, just as in its first, first birth, it is embraced by the unholy spirit. The flesh follows the soul now wedded to the spirit as a part of the bridal portion, no longer the servant of the soul, but of the spirit. Oh, happy marriage. If in it, there is committed no violation of the nuptial vow. All right. So we're going to wrap this up with Eusebius. Eusebius was a Christian historian uh, in the fourth century. And in addition to writing like a history of the church, he will also from time to time quote different early Christians and he will give some of his own thoughts uh, about theology and his own interpretation of some historical events um, that happened to the Christian Christians. So here is Eusebius. He writes, the creator of all things has impressed a natural law upon the soul of every man as an assistant and ally in his conduct, pointing out to him the right way by this law. But by the free liberty with which he is endowed, making the choice of what is best worthy of praise and acceptance because he has acted rightly not by force, but from his own free will, when he had it in his power to act otherwise, as again, making him who chooses what is worse, deserving of blame and punishment, as having by his own motion neglected the natural law and becoming the origin and fountain of wickedness and misusing himself, not from any extraneous necessity, but from free will and judgment. The fault is in him who chooses, not God. For God has not made nature or the substance of the soul bad. For he who is good can make nothing but what is good. Everything is good, which is according to nature. Every rational soul has naturally a good free will formed for the choice of what is good. But when a man acts wrongly, nature is not to be blamed. For what is wrong takes place not according to nature, but contrary to nature, it being the work of choice and not by nature. All right, so that is just a small, small um, amount of early Christian quotes about this issue of the doctrine of man. Could have given a lot more, but um, just for time's sake, we're going to try to keep it limited to just a handful of early Christian quotes on each of the five points. I, again, um, am not doing this podcast to try to slam Reformed theology or people who believe in the five points of Calvinism tulip. Um, my point is to help you see what the earliest Christians believed about these um, 
points of doctrine. And by really examining what you have been taught as orthodoxy compared to what the early Christians believed as orthodoxy, you will have a more uh, informed foundation for making decisions about which doctrine you will hold to. We all come to the table with different presuppositions and filters by which we view the Bible. Hopefully by listening to these early Christian quotes and examining them, you can also examine some of your presuppositions by which you've been viewing the text and decide for yourself who is more likely to be uh, putting forth the faith once delivered by the apostles. All right, so that's the end of part one. In the next podcast, we'll be looking at the next two uh, areas of TULIP, unconditional election, and limited atonement. So until then, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you in abundance. God bless you. I try to say It's hard to hide a smile in all this pain I guess you always could see through it all See the pride that lies before the fall And it's like the more I'm holding on The more things fall apart that tells me something's wrong Down deep within my heart To learn the art of letting go Is what I want tonight Cause I'll find hope In letting go
getting up control Take hold, take hold Giving up control Take hold of me Take home.